You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Are you glad you're not alone this morning? I'm telling you, this uh, COVID pandemic and all that we've been through over the last couple of years, um, I hope that it has taught us all how important we are to one another. Isolation is not good. Man was not meant to be alone, and of course God provided a spouse, a wife, a companion, but we need each other. And it was a very hard thing for our nation and our community and our county and everything to go through all the isolation, and I think, quite frankly, a lot of the hardship and trouble that we're seeing now is the fact that people were alone, and a lot of people are still alone. But praise be to God, if you've got Christ in your life, you will never be alone. Never. Not a single moment in your life will you ever be alone. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, if you don't mind. So we've been walking through the book of Jeremiah. If you're new with us today, we're glad you're here. And I'll try to kind of get you up to date on where we are in this book. We've got a few more sermons to go before we move on to something else. And in Jeremiah 25... Uh, We're going to look at today exactly why God was doing what he was doing. So this southern kingdom that is being, uh, well, basically judged for their disobedience, and that they've been told multiple times that if they didn't turn back to God, that they were going to suffer under his correction. Well, in chapter 25, that's now going to begin to come, become fruition. It's going to become reality. And so we're going to look at 25, and and ironically, we're going to back up into chapter 24, And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Pick it up in chapter 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, The word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all of his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given for you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do do you no harm. Yet you will have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and all its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting devastation or desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Father, we bow before you today, thanking you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the blue sky and the sunshine. Thank you for the opportunity to wake up to a new day. 
Thank you, Father, for all that you have given us this past week in provision and food and water and a safe home, clothing, a job. Father, you have poured out blessing upon blessing into our life, and we thank you for it. Father, one of the greatest blessings is being able to know you by faith through what your son did on our behalf. And not only that, to be, be part of the church, the body of Christ. Father, you said to your disciples through your son that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. No pandemic, no persecution, no attack, no division, nothing shall prevail against the church. So Father, we are grateful this morning that we can be part of the body of Christ. And Father, we know that there's only, that your word and the church are the two things that are going to last and stand the test of time. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Father, guide us in your word this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One of the questions that we've not wrestled with that we need to wrestle with this morning is why? Why would God take a, a pagan Gentile or an evil nation called the Babylonians, use that nation as a tool of judgment against his own people? Now, Habakkuk, the prophet, there's a book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. It bears his name. And that whole book deals with this very question. The prophet Habakkuk, who was prophesying during this exact same time and knew that God was going to judge the nation through this evil nation called Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, Habakkuk the prophet wrestles with God as to why he would do such a thing. So you have God's people, the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom, who've been set apart by God. They are his people, his children. And yet his children have disobeyed. They have walked away from God's counsel. They've been doing their own thing now for quite some time. God's been warning them that he's going to correct them. And the Habakkuk, prophet Habakkuk says, well, how in the world could a holy God use an evil nation to judge his own people? Well, that's the question we need to wrestle with this morning because that's exactly what's getting ready to happen. Now, I told you that we were going to bring chapter 24 to bear on this, and oftentimes when I'm planning these sermon series, what we're going through now, I was working on before the first of the year. And sometimes I miss things, and this is something I missed. The book of Jeremiah is not laid out in chronological order. In other words, the timeline that is happening in Jeremiah is not necessarily chapter by chapter that we're advancing through a particular timeline. There are portions of Jeremiah that are like that, but not all of it. Chapter 25 in the timeline actually becomes comes before chapter 24. I just missed it. So what's happening in chapter 25 is that God is warning that judgment is going to come. Now we've talked about this for weeks and weeks now. And the reason that they're going to be judged is because if you were to step into the city at this time, here's what you would find. You would find altars. These are stone altars that were built on every high hill and every green pasture in, in the promised land, in God's land that he gave to his people. And these altars are not there to honor Jehovah God. These altars are there to worship false gods, gods by the name of Baal and Ashtoreth. And, and they've been worshiping false gods. And if you remember the Ten Commandments, God clearly says the very first thing, you shall have no other gods before me. Yet, his very people have turned their back on Jehovah God. Now, God has warned them and warned them and warned them. He sent prophet after prophet, and particularly Jeremiah. And God's been saying the same thing over and over again. If you do not turn back, if you do not repent, which means to get your heart right with the Lord, admit what you've done wrong, and ask for his forgiveness, then God is going to bring correction into your life. 
Well, as we see in chapter 25, God has sent prophet after prophet. They're all saying the same thing. Jeremiah has been preaching for 23 years. He's preached in the streets of Jerusalem. He's preached at the gate of the temple. He's preached in the outskirts of town. He's preached at the gates entering the city. Jeremiah has been all over the city, and for 23 years, not one single person, not one, has listened to him. As a matter of fact, they've accused him of being a false teacher, and they've, they have decided that he needs to die just because of the message that he was proclaiming. Now, when we first began, I told you that, that Jeremiah was called to this ministry at age 17, that his ministry was going to last 40 years, and at this particular chapter, in chapter 25, we are almost dead middle of his ministry. And if you can imagine, after all of his preaching and all of his talking and all of his proclaiming, not a thing has happened. No one has changed. No one's gotten right with the Lord. I can't imagine how discouraging that would be. So in chapter 25, the time has come. And in chapter 25, God says very clearly, with great precision, what's about to happen. And what's about to happen is a foreign nation is going to come over the walls of Jerusalem. Over the walls and through the gates, they're going to burn the gates down. They're going to destroy the city. It's going to come in three waves of attacks. Historians tell us it came in three different waves, starting in 605 B.C. And what's going to happen is, is God is going to use this foreign army to judge his own people. But in chapter 25, the people still have a choice. God is setting an option in front of them. But this is going to be the last time. And God says to them, listen, if you will admit that you're wrong, and if you'll come to me and seek for mercy and forgiveness, I'll forgive you. And God, just as much as God is turning this army towards Jerusalem, just as much as he's bringing this army down upon their heads, he can easily turn them away. But it comes down to a choice that the people have to make. They could either divert the punishment by letting go of their pride and their arrogance, or they can continue to disobey, and well, you know what's going to happen. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to help us to see just why God is doing what he's doing. And could it be that God may be doing something similar in your life? If you are a Christ follower this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus and you're a Christ follower, could it be that God at times in your life may bring correction into your life? And could it be that we might ignore that? Or could it be that we explain it away? Or could it be that we accept his correction and do exactly the opposite of what this southern kingdom is going to do? Get things right with the Lord and walk with him. For us to be able to kind of frame what's happening here, I've got to give you a verse from Proverbs. You don't have to turn it over there. It's Proverbs 3. This is Solomon taking his son into his lap and going to teach his son some wisdom. More than likely, his son was about 10 or 12 at this point. And in chapter 3 of Proverbs, this is what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary from his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So imagine Solomon sitting his son in his lap and saying, Now listen, son, just like I correct you, just like I won't let you just do anything you want to do, that you've got to have boundaries in your life, and I'm going to provide those boundaries while you're young. 
And, and, and when you step outside of those boundaries, I'm going to correct you. And that correction may be some punishment. That correction may be letting the circumstances of your own choices be the weight that you have to bear. But nonetheless, any good father, any good mother is going to bring correction into the life of a child. Because that child is going to grow up. And the last thing we need in society right now is an adult child. Amen? We have got to grow up. And growing up means living within the boundaries and living within the guardrails. And we don't need to unleash any more adult children on this community. Which means we've got to make some hard calls today. It may mean that you as a parent, you may not actually be your child's best friend forever. Matter of fact, there'll be plenty of times in your life where you're not the best friend. Well, guess what God is doing to this southern kingdom? He's bringing correction, as a good father would do, to any children who have gotten off the path. So let's pick it up in chapter 25, and then we'll move over to chapter 24. And I want you to hear the final warning here. I want you to hear what God is saying. Pick it up in verse 4. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord has persistently sent to you all of his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you. God has over and over again, and I'm talking for years. Now, at the part where in chapter 25, we're talking about 23 years of Jeremiah's ministry, God has been saying the same thing. Turn back, get right, or I'm going to correct you. But it was happening long before that. Matter of fact, it began to happen all the way back with Solomon, that the nation began to turn away from God underneath Solomon's leadership. So God has been consistently saying the same things over and over and over again, and the people have been consistently rejecting it. Notice what he says. He says, verse 6, he says, I told you not to go after other gods and to serve and worship them. And when you do, you provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. He says, if you will turn away from that, then I'm not going to do you any harm. Yet, verse 7, you have not listened to me. It's like a, it's like a spoiled child. I mean, I know none of you have any spoiled kids. I know that, but just hear me out for a minute. Just use this as an illustration for a moment. It's like, an, it's like a child that has been so spoiled with all of the gifts that it has received that now, long, now, now no longer is that child willing to receive instruction and correction. It's kind of like Christmas morning and the days after, right? I don't know about you. My kids are pretty well grown up now, but it seemed like the week after Christmas when they've been given so much, it seemed like we had a lot of disciplinary issues that week after. Well, it's because they've been given so much and so much attention that after that, when things get back into the normal and the boundaries come back in place, we got to go back to school, we got to put the toys up, we got to clean the living room, all of a sudden we've got disciplinary issues. Well, the nation of Israel has been living in the promised land, the land that was described as flowing with milk and honey. They have received the blessings of God on top of one another. They have a land, they have a city, they have walls that protect them. They've got a temple where the presence of God dwells. They have everything they need. And what they've become is a spoiled group of kids and toddlers is what they've become. And God says, hey, you've turned away from me. And I'm not just going to wink at that. You're living in complete disobedience to me. And I'm not just going to say, okay, have it your way. I, I, I'm a good father. And as a good father, I'm going to correct you. Look at verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 8. Here comes the correction. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and all its inhabitants. King Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless killer. 
Now, he was an incredible leader. If you look at this history, even outside the Bible, about this particular time frame, King Nebuchadnezzar was, was, both, was both a tremendous leader, but a ruthless killer. And his armies were ruthless. And, and everybody in the land was scared to death of this army. As a matter of fact, at this particular time, there was no army on earth. Even the Egyptian army could not even hold a candle to what King Nebuchadnezzar had put together. So, so God takes this ruthless, evil nation, and it's going to be like, a, like a, a paddle in his hand. Now, I know I may be speaking in my generation here, but when I grew up, my dad had a paddle. And when I got out of line, guess what came out of the closet? A paddle. So imagine Nebuchadnezzar, and however you discipline your kids, maybe, maybe it's the timeout corner, how you discipline your kids, or maybe for some of you who are really old school, the switch, right? I'm not talking about a lot switch. <laughs> so imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army is the hand of correction of God in the lives of the southern kingdom. And he says, here's what I'm going to do, verse 10. He says, I'm going to banish you from the very land that you've been enjoying. In other words, I'm going to revoke the gifts. I'm going to pull the gifts back because apparently they've spoiled you and you think you deserve my love and my goodness, even though you've turned your back on me. And I'm going to love you, and I'm going to show you grace. I've been showing you grace for 23 years. God's warning to them was an act of his grace and his love. He says, but what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to kick you out of the promised land. Verse 10, he says, I'm going to banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Here's what's going to happen. This city set on a hill that was beautiful and glorious that everybody talked about. And at the pinnacle of that city was the temple itself. And outlined on that temple was gold that you could see for miles as you would travel to the city of Jerusalem during this day. He says, you have received all of my blessings. And now, because you've become a spoiled brat, I'm going to bring correction. And that correction is going to be you being kicked out of your homeland. He says, no longer will there be the the sounds of weddings. Something that God gave them in the land and gave them as part of, of the covenant promises. They would multiply. They would become a great nation. They would, they would be blessed as a result. He says, that's all going to go silent. He says, there's no longer going to be Passover festivals or, or any of the other festivals that God allowed them to celebrate in the city. There's no longer going to be a temple that you can go and, and sense my presence and be able to worship. There's no longer going to be walls around you that can protect you. The gates are going to be burned down. They're going to be destroyed. And you're going to be carried off to a foreign land 900 miles away where they don't speak the same language you do. They don't eat the same food that you do. They look differently than you in the middle of the desert. And that's exactly what God's been warning now for over 23 years to the people. And you know what they've done persistently over and over again? Rejected it. He says the lights are going to go out in the city. Verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This is not going to be like a six-month hiatus here. This is not going to be like a, a real short kind of thing, and the people are just going to be okay, and they're going to be able to come back to the land. No, 70 years. An entire generation is going to die in Babylon. Seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Does this mean that God is somehow angry? Is, is God, does God hate the people? Does, does God want to destroy the people? No, it's exactly the opposite. And it's in God's correction that we find both his grace, his mercy, and his love. He's waited 
23 plus years, I would say even 100 years at this point, that the people have been in rebellion and he has patiently waited and warned only to see no one respond. You see, God corrects his people out of his own love and his own grace. Just like when you correct your kids. You do it out of love, hopefully. Hopefully you're not doing it out of anger. Hopefully you're not doing it out of a, out of a short temper where the child comes away thinking, oh my goodness, my mom or my dad hates me. I hope that's not the result. If we're doing it out of love and we're doing it out of grace and we're doing it out of mercy, we're doing it exactly the way God does it. And remember, out of that love and that grace has as its goal to correct, not to push away. God is not putting his people in 70 years of exile and bondage because he hates them. He's doing it because he loves them. And you see, there are times that God needs to step in and protect us from our number one problem. You know who your number one problem is? Let me tell you who my number one problem is. It's me. And it's you. And sometimes God is willing to step in and say, you know what, I need to protect you from your own foolishness. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some boundaries in. I'm going to close you in. I'm going to say, no, no, no. Outside over here, that's wrong. And in here, in here is where my blessings are. If you consciously walk outside those boundaries, well, guess what's on the other side of that boundary? Same thing is going to happen with these folks. Bondage. No happiness. Notice that, that God says there's going to be no weddings and no happiness and no mirth and no... You see, when you step out of God's direction and will for your life... We do it because we think there's something better on the other side, right? We step out of God's provisions. We step out of God's commandments because we think there's something better on that side over there. It's exactly the opposite. What's over there will bring harm. And walking with Jesus, following him and obedience to him, that's where we find blessing. That's where we find joy and peace. I know some of you are looking at me like, really? Well, Pastor, you don't have any idea what I'm enjoying over there right now. <laughs> Let me tell you something. It's for a season. If you're a Christ follower, make no mistake about it. If you're out there on the outside of his boundaries, God will correct because God is a good father if you are one of his children. Now let's think about this for just a moment. The best, best way to think about this is an illustration. I'm standing in Walmart. What a great illustration, right? Standing in Walmart, I'm standing in line. And uh, the, the self-checkout thing was busy, so I'm actually standing in line. And there's a family in front of me, mom with some small kids, young kids, and man, they are losing their mind up in Walmart. Apparently, they wanted something, and they didn't get it. And I don't know if this was a single mom, but I could tell she, I could see her frustration rising. I've been right there where she is, okay? Not in a long time, but I've been there. And these kids are absolutely, both of them are just losing their minds. I mean, they are tore up. Well, I'm standing in our line, and my dad nature starts to rise up. And <laughs> with our kids, when this would happen, it didn't happen a lot, but when it did, my wife and I kind of made an agreement. We're just going to let them have, lay down the floor, kick and scream all you want. It's not going to change a doggone thing up in here. I'm not your friend right now, and that's okay, but you ain't getting whatever it is you want, so just have it out. And we'll let them be embarrassed. Kick it out in the floor if you want to. This mom, she's trying to appease, and she's buying them other things, and the kids are just getting louder and louder, and I feel dad coming up in me. But you know why I didn't engage? You know why I didn't cross that line? You know why I didn't correct those kids? Because there's a word for that. It's called child abuse. 
And here's what would happen. Somebody would have their phone out. And literally, by the time I got home, it would have been all over Facebook, pastor at Hyde Park beats up toddler. And then y'all would have been firing me and looking for a new pastor, and the whole thing would have went off the cliff, right? Now, let me just ask you a very straightforward question. Why am I not stepping in to correct that child? It's not my child. Guess what? If you name the name of Jesus, and you name the name of Christ, and you say, look, I prayed a prayer when I was 12, but you've lived your whole life, and you've not come under the correcting hand of your Savior and your King, let me describe to you what that means. It means you're not one of His children. Everyone in this room who's following Jesus, everyone in this room who's been walking with Jesus a while, and it doesn't it take years to figure this out. It happens pretty quick. You know what it's like to step outside of what Christ has for you, and you know what it feels like to come under that chastisement and that correction. Amen? I know what that's like far too often. Let me tell you something. If God's not doing that in your life, if you could run headlong towards whatever you want to do and you can live any way you live, any way you want to choose, any way you want to do things and there's no correction, you might feel bad about it. That's different than conviction. Feeling bad about it, maybe a little remorse about it. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that deep inward conviction that you've crossed the line. And there is that still small voice in your head that goes, son or daughter, I'm not pleased with that. You know what's right and you know what's wrong, and that's obviously wrong. You, you need to make that right. That's what God's doing to the southern kingdom because they're his people. And God is willing to make them uncomfortable. God is willing to make them feel some pain. God is willing to take them into a foreign land for 70 years so that they get right with him. Turn over to chapter 24. Now we're ready. And remember, chapter 25 is before chapter 24. How do I know that? Look at verse 1 in chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me a vision. So here's how we know 25 goes before 24. It's because of 25, he's still talking about the coming judgment. And 24, it's already happening. Now, historians tell us that starting in 605 BC, there was three major waves of attack on the city of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and his army. The first wave, you know really well. Because if you know the guy by the name of Daniel, Daniel and his friends were taken in that first wave in 605. Now, Daniel was a leader, although he was a teenager. He and the young men that he hung out with were already seen as leaders in the southern kingdom. So what is King Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's taking the best and the brightest first. He's taking them over to Babylon. Notice it says the metal workers, the craftsmen. He's taking them first. He's going to put them in Babylon, and here's what he's going to do. He is going to attempt to make them fine young Babylonians. If you read Daniel 1 and 2, you'll find out where Daniel gets in this situation where the king is requiring him to eat a certain amount of certain type of food. Daniel says, no, I'm not eating that. They were teaching Daniel the language. They were teaching Daniel the culture. The purpose of this was when they brought the rest of the people over to Babylon, when they got there, they would see their own people who looked like Babylonians, talked like Babylonians, and ate like Babylonians. In other words, if their leaders had abandoned God, then why should we try to remain faithful? It's a pretty good tactic, strong tactic by this particular kingdom. 
So in chapter 24, the wave of attack has already begun. The Babylonians have already come through the gate. They're already coming over the wall. People are already being killed in the streets. People are already being kidnapped. Now the final wave is when the temple's burned and everything is destroyed, but make no mistake about it, they're already in the city. Notice what he says. He says, behold, I saw a vision, verse verse 1. Here's the vision that he saw. He saw two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord, verse 2. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. So Jeremiah has this vision. And you know he's had these before. We have the potter and the wheel. We have that vision. We've had some other visions in the book. But, but Jeremiah sees this image, and it's an image of two baskets of figs sitting in front of the gate that leads into the temple proper. And in one basket, we have fully ripe figs ready to eat. In the other basket, we have rotten figs, figs that were not fit to be eaten. So we have these two baskets, and God's going to say, Jeremiah, what do you think about these figs? What do you think about this vision? And Jeremiah says, well, I, I see two baskets. I see some figs that are good and some figs that are rotten. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. All right, so... We have the image of the ripe figs and the rotten figs. You would imagine that the rotten figs would have been an illustration for those who are under God's judgment. You would imagine that the rotten figs has to, has to show the imagery of, of God's judgment upon people, that the people who are going off to captivity, they're the ones that represent the rotten figs. Now, during this particular wave of attack, there's going to be some who decide they're going to remain in, in Jerusalem, that they're going to fight against this. So you have two groups of people. You have one group of people who accept the fact that they're under judgment. They accept the fact that they're going to be carried off to Babylon, and they simply go. There's another group of people who say, no, 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 we're going to stay here. It may have been that they were explaining away the judgment of God. It may have been that the people who were being carried away, they're saying it was those people who were wrong, were right. King Zedekiah is the one who's leading the charge. But the good fruit represents those who are going to be in 70 years of captivity. How could that be? Let me put it another way. How could there be anything good that comes out of God's correction? How could, how could there be anything good that comes out of something painful? How, how, could, how could there be something blessing, a blessing that comes out of, of some really, really difficult 70 years of captivity? In this particular image, God says to Jeremiah and to the people, only those who simply surrender themselves to what I'm doing are the ones that are going to be blessed. The ones who reject it, the ones who deny it, the ones who set it aside, those are the ones that are going to pay the price. Notice what he says. He says here, verse 8, but, this, but thus says the Lord, like the bad figs, that are so bad they cannot be eaten. So will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a heart to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, 
a curse. So the people, Zedekiah and his officials, I would say there's probably some priests involved in that. They're all saying, no, 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 we're going to stay right here. We're we're not going to go to to Babylon. To go to Babylon would be to give up. To go to Babylon would be to surrender. To go to Babylon would be to admit that we've been wrong and that Jeremiah has been right this whole time. There's a whole bunch of people who've now realized for the first time in a long time that what Jeremiah has been saying all this time is exactly the truth, even though they've called him a liar. But there's going to be some who say, you know what? Jeremiah is still a liar. We're not leaving. We're staying right here. We're the ones in control. We will not surrender. We will not submit. Folks, I have seen this play out. I've seen this play out over and over again. I've seen people who, because of whatever circumstances they've got themselves in, deny the fact that God has brought correction in their life and just keep running headlong towards destruction, even though they know what's true, even though they know what the Bible says, even though they know that they, that they have put their faith in Jesus and we, are not, we don't own ourselves anymore. We've been bought with a price. They know all of that, but they don't care because something has got a hold of their life that they enjoy much more. So they run headlong into it, even knowing that on the backside of that thing is pain, They're going to lose their family. They're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their witness. They're going to lose their church. They're going to lose it all, but they don't care. They keep running towards it. Well, that's exactly what Zedekiah and his officiants are doing. And can I say to you, that is a horrible, horrible, dangerous place to be. God says it very clearly right here. He says, I'm going to make them a horror. I'm going to make them a taunt. I'm going to bring them a, I'm going to bring a curse down upon them. I am going to bring famine. Look, the people who go off to Babylon, they're going to have food. They're going to have shelter. Yes, they're in a foreign land. Yes, they're under God's judgment, but it's there where God is going to do some of his best work in his people. Because when those people come out of Babylonian captivity 70 years later, idolatry is no longer going to be a problem, at least in the short term. They're going to be God's people once again. They are not willing to surrender. They are not willing to accept God's correction. They are not willing to admit that they were wrong. I think we're going to go, we need to go over into the New Testament because I need to give you some perspective on what this looks like from a New Testament perspective. Let's go over to Matthew 16. Key moment in Jesus' life with his his disciples. And what what I want to do here is I I want to bring together what it means to be a Christ follower and especially when God is bringing correction into your life and what your response should be. Because in Matthew 16, we're going to see Jesus bring some correction, and it is a very stern correction. So let me kind of set the scene here. So Jesus and his disciples are around the area of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is walking along, the disciples are following, and as they're going, Jesus asks a very important question. He says to his disciples, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? By this time, Jesus had done several miracles. By this time, he had done some profound teaching. So there's a lot of buzz about who Jesus is. And so he asked the disciples, what do you hear people saying about me? Well, some say you're, you're John the Baptist, a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Or maybe, maybe you're a reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. Now, there were reasons why these Jewish men or these people that were in the crowd who were Jewish would have thought those things. But, but Jesus has a deeper question. I, I would imagine in my mind's eye that at this point, Jesus stops And the 12 kind of huddle up around him, and he looks them right in the eye, and he says, okay, I hear what the crowds are saying, but here's what I'm concerned about. Who do you say that I am? That's far more important, because these 12 have been walking with him now for for some time. 
Well, Peter, being the one who oftentimes speaks first, he gets it right. Yay, Peter. He gets it right. He says, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ, which means the anointed one. You are the Messiah. Well done, Peter. And I would imagine that the other 11 are shaking their head in agreement. Yep, that's what we believe as well. Jesus looks at Peter and looks at the 12 and says, well done. Well done. You are correct. And he says, it's upon these statements of truth and it's upon what you guys are going to do that I'm going to build my church, this Greek word ekklesia, which means separated ones. And I'm going to gather them together and I've got to work for them to do. And I'm going to gather my church together and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Now, you've, you've got to understand what's going on in the minds of the disciples. What's going on in the mind of the disciples up to this point is they perceive Jesus' kingdom and his reign to be an earthly one. Now, of course, later on it will be, but at that particular point in time, they expected Jesus to go into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, ascend the throne of David. They are going to be sitting in his right hand and his left hand. They're going to have places of power, authority. It's going to be a comfy job. They're going to have a great income. They're going to have all the food they need, and the kingdom's going to be restored, and life is just going to be grand. That's their expectation of Jesus. I mean, this man can work miracles. I mean, who's going to be able to defy him? He, he can raise people from the dead. There's not a Roman or a Caesar that can stand against him. We're going to go in and we're going to kick him out. That's their expectation. Jesus knows this is their expectation. So notice what he says in verse 21. We've just had this great moment. Now listen to what Jesus says. From the time that Jesus, from that time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem not to set up a throne, not to set up a hierarchy, not to set up some kind of cushy set of jobs where the 12 disciples are going to rule the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to be raised back to life. That doesn't sound like a very pleasurable trip to Jerusalem. I mean, if we've got this in a little trifold travel bulletin, it's not going to be a very pleasant one to read. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, and his own people are going to put him to death. Well, Peter's not going to have any part of that. I mean, that, that messes with Peter's preconceived notion of what it means to follow Jesus. In his mind, following Jesus means comfort and joy and stuff. And now Jesus is talking about all this go to Jerusalem and die later on, he says he's going to be hung on a cross. Oh, they're not going to have any part of that. So you know what Peter does? Here's what we have. We have, we have two trains coming head on to each other. On the one hand, the disciples have their idea of what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's all about comfort and power and money and more and more and more. Jesus, on the other hand, come to seek and to save those who are lost. How's he going to do it? By not giving them stuff, but by dying. So Peter's got to deal with this. And people are looking to him to lead, right? So you know what Peter does? I don't know if this happens, but the word rebuke is a very strong word. You see it there? Peter pulls Jesus off and rebukes him. So just imagine in your mind's eye that, that Peter gets Jesus by the cloak. Now I want you to get this imagery because it's important. Peter gets Jesus by the cloak and maybe just pulls him off to the side. Gets all up, as we would say, all up in Jesus' business. And he says to Jesus, uh-uh, no way. 
No way that's going to happen. We're there for you, Lord. We'll do whatever we need to do. Far be it. This will never happen to you. Heaven forbid that your life is going to end. No, no, no. You know why Peter's saying that? Because in his mind, the concept of the kingdom is about him being comfortable and having some stuff. That's what Peter's thinking. That's what John's thinking. That's what James is thinking. All the disciples are thinking that. Well, what turned into just a great moment with the disciples is getting ready to turn into one of the worst moments because look at what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Jesus calls Peter Satan, that, that Peter's being influenced by Satan. Now, just previous, Jesus looks at Peter and says, well done, Peter. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now he's saying, Peter, you're being influenced by Satan. Get behind me. And here's the point. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. The people in the southern kingdom, Zedekiah and his council, you know what they were setting their minds on? They were setting mind, their minds on things of this world. They had their minds set on adultery and lying. They had their minds set on gaining more power and influence. They had their minds set on having their ritual worship of God, but yet having the the worship of Baal in their back pocket. These southern kingdom leaders were rejecting God's correction because they wanted it their way. Peter is rejecting the whole plan of the Godhead Trinity. Remember, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Peter is rejecting the plan of the Godhead Trinity so much so that he's got Jesus by the cloak all up in his face saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And Jesus has to correct him. And he says to, to Peter, you and all these men, you have your mind focused on things of this world, not on things above. But then verse 24. I think the moment that Jesus says this is so powerful because what better way to contrast his kingdom with the kingdom of earth by what he says in verse 24. He looks at his disciples. And I don't know, maybe he's got a few of them by the, the nap of the cloak now. Maybe he's pulled them in close. Maybe his tone of his voice has changed. I can tell you what he's getting ready to say is going to shock these 12 men to the core of their being. Listen to what he says. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up a cross and follow me. Well, there's only one reason you take up a cross in that period of time. Listen, he's not talking about put on a necklace. He's not talking about put an earring in your ear that has a cross on it. What he's saying is take up a literal cross and you're going to follow me. Not literally, but figuratively. But here's the point. They understood it literally. What does it mean to take up a cross? It means to come and die. Hey, Jesus, I'm okay with you when you say, come and dine with me. Yeah, let's have a meal. That's good. Hey, Jesus, I'm fine hanging out with you as you're doing these miracles and healing people. Wow, what a great show that was. Hey, Jesus, I'm okay with you telling me about some things about heaven and about golden streets and, and pearly gates and about how everything's going to work out in the end. I love all of that. But, but Jesus, you can keep this whole idea of coming and dying because that doesn't square with my American culture and what it means to be an American. American means stuff. American means happy. We got to be happy. We got to be entertained above all things. You see the two trains on the track? And it's this very reason why when God brings correction into our life, we can't even begin to recognize it. I heard this story about a church in New York. Back in August of 2003, the name of the church is the Church of the Holy Cross. And this church was robbed on two different occasions. 
On the first occasion, the, the men who broke in only stole like, their offering box, their lock box where they had the offerings. They stole it. But about three weeks later, they came back, and apparently they thought this thing was worth a lot of money, so they decided to steal it. Well, in that church, behind the uh, altar in the pulpit, was this large crucifix with Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus, the size of this crucifix, the size of Jesus himself depicted on the cross was about, was about four foot high. The thing weighed 200 pounds. It had been made out of plaster. And these robbers decided that maybe they could resell that thing and get some money out of it. But what they do is, instead of taking the whole wooden cross and Jesus on the cross, they take some tools and they, they prize Jesus off the cross and they take the, the statue of Jesus and they leave the cross behind. And the, the caregiver of the church who, who came in and saw all this could not figure out what was going on. Apparently they decided, and this is his quote, they decided we are going to take the Jesus and leave the cross. We don't know why they just took him. Why not take the entire crucifix? Well, I think there's a story to be learned there. You see, I think we love the Americanized Jesus that says, love, peace, joy, fruitfulness, golden streets, ticket to heaven. We love that Jesus. Oh, we'll carry that Jesus with us. But then that Jesus says, hey, uh, there's some things in your life that are not where they need to be, and it's going to require you to die to yourself. Wait a minute, Jesus, that's not what I signed up for. No, that's in fact what you did sign up for when you put your faith in Jesus. Paul said it this way. He says, I have to die daily. And what it means is I have to die to my plans. I have to die to what I think the kingdom ought to be. I got to die to what I think is important. I got to die to what I think is, is how my money ought to be used. I got to die by how, to how my marriage is supposed to be. I got to die to all of that. And I've got to let God define that for me. And anytime I get those two mixed up, God says, well, I'll be happy to bring some correction into your life. Because I'm a good father. Yeah, we're all in when Jesus says come and dine. We're all into that. But the whole idea of dying to self, not so much. And I'm speaking for myself as much as I'm speaking to you guys. The crowds were around for the benefits. But Jesus is calling the disciples to something deeper. Your walk with Christ will always be hindered as long as you push back on the correction he's trying to bring in your life. Yeah, I know it hurts. I got that. Sometimes that pain is going to be the choice you made. Sometimes there's something going on in your heart that nobody else knows about but you. God sees it. And isn't it amazing how Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father always seem to put their hand right on that one thing. That one thing we've locked back. The one thing that nobody else knows about. The one thing that we keep to ourselves that kind of that pet sin that we keep running back to as a follower of Jesus, we keep going back to that. And the Lord says, I see that. I'm being patient with you on this. And maybe it comes through a sermon. Maybe it comes through a song. Maybe it comes through a friend at work that comes up to you and says, hey, look, I know that you name the name of Jesus. I know that you attend a church. Man, the way you treated the boss the other day was just, that was completely off the rails. You were angry. You were bitter. You've been gossiping about it ever since. And, and, and maybe, maybe because you're a chronic, maybe, maybe you need to think about that you got this wrong. It could come through a person. The fact is, is that God being a good father is going to bring correction. The question is, are you rejecting that correction? I'll tell you how it worked out for the southern kingdom. The ones who stayed, the ones who rejected, the ones who said, we're going to stay here with our promised land and our 
temple and our houses and our money and our stuff. We're going to stay here. You know what happened to them? They were wiped out. For the ones that weren't killed, they were starved to death. The ones who went to Babylon under God's judgment accepted it for what it was and went 70 years later, if they didn't die in Babylon, come back to the promised land stronger than they've ever been. It comes down to where you, what you're going to choose this morning. Just like we started, it comes down to a choice. But hear me clearly on this. You can't separate Jesus from the cross. And you can't separate you following him from taking up your cross as well. You can't follow him without taking up a cross. You can't follow him without dying daily. And maybe today, right now in this moment, as we worship together here in just a moment, maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. Well, let me tell you how that plays out. Judgment's going to come. You're going to experience all of the pain and the problems of this life with having no answers to that. And then later on, when you die and leave this world, well, you're separated from God for eternity in a place called hell. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. But I'm going to say it because the Bible says it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've already put your faith in him, then maybe some of the stuff that's going on in your life is actually God saying, come back to me. This is in your life because I want you to come back to me. This is, this is happening because I need to correct some things in your life. I need you to die. And I need you to take up a cross. God does that because he loves you. Not because he hates you. He loves you. And never forget, it's an act of his grace in your life. Father in heaven, you are good, you are righteous, and you are holy. And I'm amazed at your patience, and I'm amazed at your love for, for me. That there's been periods in my life where I have rejected your correction. And Father, I know what that's like, and I know what happens. It just gets worse and worse. So Father, I pray that sooner rather than later, for your followers here and those who are watching online this morning, that maybe they're sitting at their dining room table or maybe for someone who's here today and they just need someone to pray with them that they would not be afraid of COVID, they would not be afraid of anything else and they would simply respond by coming, gathering with someone else and seeking that new, that new start, admitting that we've, wrong, that we've wronged you, admitting that we're on the wrong side of this, admitting that in our pride and our arrogance we thought we had it right but we had it all wrong. For the one in this room and the one online that has not yet placed their faith in you, there is a day coming. There's a day coming where you're going to fulfill all your promises. One of those things that you have said clearly over and over in your word, that all those who die apart from you, all those who die apart from faith in Jesus will be cast aside. They will be punished. And it'll be much longer than 70 years. So, Father, may we choose wisely this morning. May we choose the path that leads to life, even if that path includes pain. Confront our American culture, our American Christian Christianity that, that says it's all about comfort. Father, confront that in our lives, and may we repent of it, because it can lead us down some very dark paths. Father, have your will in your way. Holy Spirit, have your will in your way this morning. We love you. And yes, Father, we're thankful even when you correct us. For then, in that moment, we experience your grace afresh and anew. Thank you, Father, for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, Hyde Park Baptist
hyde.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park.